This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? And his name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. We are out and about again. Dirty Habit is the restaurant. We've been here before. Happy to be back inside the Hotel Monaco, downtown Washington, D.C. So you might have heard of this, ladies and gentlemen. There's a midterm election coming up. Yes, I know. A lot of attention on Queen Elizabeth. But there's still a midterm election coming up. And one of the people who will not have a majority of things to say about it, but will not have a quiet voice about what the outcome of the midterm elections are, is our guest this week, Stephen Law. He is president of the Senate Leadership Fund. Stephen, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me here. So, Roger Daltrey sang the lyrics. Pete Townsend wrote the words. Who are you? That's a great, great question. First of all, I want to say I think it's great that we're meeting in dirty habit, which I think could be sort of a metaphor for politics, you know. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Uh, (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm a mixture of things. Uh, Grew up in Oakland, California, and uh, grew up uh, in Saudi Arabia. My dad worked for an oil company, came back. I, for a while, thought I was going to be a rock musician. Most people don't know that. And then I realized... I didn't actually have the level of talent. Uh, what instrument? Uh, uh, I played keyboards. Okay. Still play keyboards. I'm between bands, anybody who's looking for somebody. Um, uh, but then I, uh, I discovered a taste for politics. Uh, came here back in 1986, had a brief internship with Aldamato, which was an education in itself. Unto its own. Yes, exactly. And then since then, I just realized uh, I just have a bug for politics. And it's not just the technique and the strategy. It's also, uh, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier, a love for the fact that people come to this city uh, to make a difference. And we sometimes make differences in different ways, uh, but there's a lot of patriotism that draws people here. And uh, it's been Left something- Left right? Yeah, yeah. And it, it's always motivated me mm-hmm. uh, to uh, be part of that process, try to influence who ends up getting elected. And different places also influence policy when I've been on the government side. Describe for my audience your relationship with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. It goes way back. How far uh, back? Uh, well, it goes all the way back to March of uh, 1987. Uh, he needed to find a lawyer to do his judiciary work, and uh, I badly needed a paying job. I had a job with DeMotto, but that was not a paying job. 
And so I was glad to get paid. <clears throat> I didn't know him well. Uh, I remember when I left D'Amato's office, they said, why do you want to go work for that guy? He's a one-termer. He's not going anywhere. He's not important. Uh, just goes to show that uh, people can be wrong and that people who look like they're not going anywhere can end up becoming incredibly important. And I bonded with him right away. We pretty quickly got into the big fights over campaign finance reform, which was where Senator McConnell first uh, made his mark. And um, I was his staffer for all that work and uh, ran his first re-election campaign in 1990, which was a huge risk. I mean, I'd never so much as put a bumper sticker on a car before that, uh, but he was really the campaign manager. I was just his arms and legs uh, doing things, but uh, that was the beginning of our relationship and my first experience with electoral politics. And you later became his chief of staff. After we won in... 1990, I came back uh, in about April. The chief left and I took over. And you are currently the president of the Senate Leadership Fund, are you not? That's um, what they say underneath my uh, photograph in the post, post office. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what is the Senate Leadership Fund? Uh, it's uh, what's known as a super PAC. Uh, and as you know, but not everybody knows, what makes us super is simply that we can take money in unlimited amounts companies and individuals. Uh, but uh, the price of that is we can't coordinate with campaigns. We have to do all of our spending uh, independently. Independently. Yeah. Independent expenditure is the key word. Yes, that's exactly right. People think that we take all this money, we give it to candidates. Not allowed to do that. Not allowed to talk to them about how we uh, spend it. And uh, we've been doing that uh, all the way back. Well, the first iteration of this organization was American Crossroads. Mm -hmm. Started that in 2010 with Carl Rove. But then we partnered with Leader McConnell after we won the majority in 2014, and Senate Leadership Fund was born in partnership with Leader McConnell. And the goal of the Senate Leadership Fund is to either maintain if there is a Republican majority or if there isn't, obtain one, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a very simple, reductive goal. Mm -hmm. yeah. So in August, if I have the notes here correctly, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said it was more probable than not that the House will go Republican this midterm election. This is a direct quote. I think it's there's a probably a greater likelihood the House flips than the Senate. Mm -hmm. Senate races are just different. They're statewide. Candidate quality has a lot to do with the outcome. Now, I've been around Senator McConnell for many, many years. I know how to interpret the things he's saying and not saying. Is it still true that it is more likely than not that the House flips and the Senate does not? Yeah, and I, I think it's important to have some context for that. Uh, he was asked that question in Kentucky. I think I wasn't mm -hmm. with him. Uh, and this is something that he, would, he was saying months earlier, by the way. Uh, and, and he was trying to explain the difference between why the House is more likely to be affected by the midterm wave than the Senate. And, you know, you just go back to 2018, which is the Trump mm -hmm. uh, midterm election. Uh, we lost 40 seats in the House. We picked up two seats in the Senate. It wasn't because... Uh, Senate Republicans were smarter. It's because you go in with a wave, you go out with a wave. And Senate races tend to stand apart from these these waves, these kind of recurring mm -hmm. cycles in politics. And so his point was, yeah, it's more likely the House flips because there will be uh, a, some a kind Senate of wave. Yeah, some, some kind, kind of a Republican wave. We'll get wave. into the def definitions of how big or small it will be in a minute. Right. Whereas the Senate is, is affected by... Meaning that there are tidal forces that are more prevalent in House races writ large than they are in Senate races. Correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. So what is your current sense of the atmosphere and the climate in this midterm elections? As favorable as it was when you were quite bullish in April or less favorable? I think it's uh, a little more tenuous. Uh, you know, less gone, favorable. Yeah, I would say you know, we've gone through three months of, of considerable 
uh, roiling of the waters, uh, the, the Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court, uh, a lot of noise surrounding the uh, FBI's incursion at uh, uh, Mar-a-Lago, all that, the, the kind of wash through the system. I, I do think, uh, though, we're at another inflection point. I, 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 and we see this in our polling. We see this anecdotally in different races. First of all, I think our candidates are starting to, to really step up and, and, and run good races. And second of all, uh, just incrementally, we're just seeing the, the, the environment shift back a little bit more in our direction. It's starting to look more like what a midterm cycle. What are the indicators cycle. of that? A couple of things. Uh, first of all, independents uh, are still locked into the, where they were before. Inflation is their number one concern. They're concerned about the economy. They're very, very negative uh, about Biden. They think things are going in the wrong direction, and they think things are getting worse. That's the most important thing. They think things are getting worse and will continue. Directional attitudes are still net negative among independents. Why is that so important in these statewide Senate races? Well, because uh, to win these races, we need to reach persuadable swing voters, independents, soft Democrats, soft Republicans. Uh, again, on the House, if you've got a wave, you can ride it in. But and you're in a district that's drawn in a certain way. It's Yeah. The, yeah. the outcome is almost foreordained. Yeah. But yeah. Not, it's not so in Senate races. Right. If you're trying to win in a state so like tell Wisconsin me, be specific, or Pennsylvania. Stephen yeah. Law, what, yeah. what race looks better to you than it did, let's say, three weeks ago? because of these indicators you just outlined? Uh, I would say uh, a couple of them. First of all, well, Pennsylvania is one that looks significantly better for a number of factors. Less environmental, more the nature of the candidates. I think Dr. Oz... Uh, Mehmet and, Oz, the Republican yeah, nominee. Right. I think he's, uh, he's, he's really uh, stepped up. He's on the air. I think his advertising is good. And then uh, John Fetterman has, has faced significant difficulties, some of them health-related. Uh, also, as, as his record has come out, he's uh, taken positions on crime that are very, very hard to defend in this environment as voters are increasingly concerned about that as an issue. So for Pennsylvania Republicans, it was a bruising primary. Has Mehmet Oz consolidated Republican support? He is. He is consolidating it. And, and when we looked at his low approval ratings, when we looked at where he mm -hmm. stood in the polls, on the one hand, we were concerned. On the other hand, we saw there's a huge group of Republican voters who were, they were just for Dave McCormick. They were persuaded by the very effective advertising against him in the primary. And it took him a while to wash that off and to set this race back up as a contest between him as the Republican and as a Democrat who's very liberal and John Fetterman. That's a hold priority for you because the outgoing Senator Republican. So you need to hold Pennsylvania. We do. Yes. You can't get a majority without holding Pennsylvania or can you? Uh, we could. It just makes it harder because we've got to pick up more uh, seats that are currently hold by, held by Democrats, and there aren't a lot of them that are competitive. And we're going to do this on the other side of this first break, Stephen Law, but uh, one of the decisions you make with the Leadership Fund is where and how much to put this independent expenditure money, correct? That's the biggest decision we make. Biggest yeah. decision we make. We'll get more on that decision-making process and other key races when we come back. I'm Major Garrett. Dirty Habit is our host restaurant. Lunch will be here soon. I'll be back. One second. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. 
Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Dirty Habit, as I mentioned before, our host restaurant. Lunch will be here soon. September 13th is the day that we are recording this. I like to always remind the audience when we're doing this so you know if there was any news event that day that might be referenced. September 13th. So there is a news event today. Inflation numbers came out. Stock market is way down. You mentioned it, Stephen Law, head of the Senate Leadership Fund in the first segment. How much in the end, when the history of this midterm election is written, do you believe inflation or abortion and abortion rights related issues will dominate? Well, unsurprisingly, we poll on this a lot. I we, don't, I, I'm not surprised about yeah, that we, at all. We, we ask voters, you know, who, what kind of uh, person do they want to see in, in the Senate? They want someone who's going to fight inflation and crime versus somebody who's going to you know, fight for abortion access. And uh, by a significant margin, even in Democrat-leaning states, people want to deal with these bread and butter, uh, you know, quality of life type issues. And um, uh, abortion certainly had an impact on this election cycle. It was in a significant event. It um, probably more than anything else helped Democrat reconsolidate and re-energize their base. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were flat as a pancake uh, until the Dobbs decision. It got them engaged. They started giving money. They're going to turn out and vote. But in terms of that broader electorate, when people think about uh, who they're going to vote for in the end in the fall, they're going to have the cost of groceries in mind, now at a record high going all the way back to 1979. They're going to be concerned about the safety of their neighborhoods, and they're going to be concerned about the future of the economy as there are increasingly dark clouds of recession looming over it. I have a theory about um, the Dobbs decision, and I'd like to run it by you, which is, yes, it is quite obviously and directly about abortion and how states change the laws after Dobbs. Mm -hmm. But it also strikes me as it's deeper than that. It's about stability and the idea that there was a right, whether you agreed with it or disagreed with it, it was assumed for 50 years. And the removal of that created instability and that instability also jarred people. So even if you're not directly related to that issue, meaning you have no direct interest in yourself, you're jarred by this instability. And that instability has made you aware of forces in politics like the the Supreme Court that have gotten your attention. Mm -hmm. And therefore you are more motivated to pay attention to a midterm election than you might have otherwise been. What do you think of that? I think that's the case, and I think especially for people who are more inclined to vote uh, Democratic. Again, when we look at uh, polling and we look at individual states, uh, it, it, it's taken an issue that in some ways, to your point, has been kind of dormant politically. It's interesting. It, I mean, it always goes on. There are various statutes passed in the states all the time on this. There's often a lot of debate, but it's not been a clear and present issue to, to the way it is now. now. It is. Yeah, it certainly is now. And the conversation in states uh, influences the way some of your Senate candidates are describing their positions on this. Blake Masters in Arizona is trying to scrub his website of references Mm -hmm. to his earlier positions on this issue. Some other Senate candidates are doing the same thing. Is that wise? I think the most important thing for Republican candidates to do is to be very clear about where they stand and 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 not to craw data around, but have a, have a position. They, craw data around. Right, that's they, a good one. That's Southern. Um, uh, you know, be, be clear, understand where the electorate is, be able to articulate and defend your position. But at the end of the day, like I said, at, at the end of the day, this election is 
going to be much more impacted by how people feel about their quality of life. So on TV, when in, let's say, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Democrats say abortion, Republicans are going to say crime inflation. I think there's going to be a lot or whatever other issues are are top of mind for voters in that particular state. But you pulled this and you know that that is part of your anecdote. Inflation and crime. Yeah, those are That's those your are counter those argument. are pressing issues. Well, the the, the the argument ultimately is that you know you elected uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats, gave them full power in Washington over the last two years. Are you happy with what they've done to the country? And most voters are deeply concerned. They're concerned about what they're having to shell out for groceries. They're concerned about their 401ks. They're concerned about the future of the economy. Those are the things that are driving voter concerns for your average person out there who's got to make a living and provide for a family. So that's the argument is if you like the way the current management has run Washington, great, keep them. If you don't, it's time for a change. So you mentioned the roiling. That was the word you used of the, you called it an incursion. The FBI and the Justice Department would be called would call it execution of a search warrant. Writ large is former President Trump and all the things that circulate around him, of which there are many, positives or negatives in this environment for Republicans? Well, he he does motivate the base, and uh, he is... As evidenced in many primaries. Right, absolutely. He's had an impact on primaries, but he also is somebody who speaks to that base and keeps them uh, energized. Um, At the end of the day, though, I mean, I I think that the... The key challenge for Republicans is to to push through to make the core argument about what every midterm is ultimately about. It's it's your chance to grade the people in power. Grade the incumbent, which is Joe Biden, Mm -hmm. not the former president, Donald Trump. Right. The more this is about Biden, the better off you are. I think at the end of the day, that's true. And the more it's about Trump, the worse off you are. It depends on who you're talking to. If you're Trump voters, then you want Trump voters to hear from Trump why this election matters. But that's not who's going to elect your statewide Senate candidates. Trump the, voters alone. They can't do it. Well, they, well, they can't alone. They, they, they can uh, inversely if they don't show up. So it's important that they be motivated and energized. And You know what uh, I'm driving at, yeah. Stephen. The mm-hmm. relationship publicly between the person you are most associated with, Mitch McConnell, and the former president is dicey to say the least. Yes. Correct. I'm, I'm not misstating it, mm-hmm. am I? No. Mm-mm. How does that complicate your life? I don't think it complicates our life at all with what we're trying to do. I mean, we our our mission is to stay clear of the Washington parlor game of talking about you know President Trump, uh, uh, Mitch McConnell, and focus on making sure we make the case to voters uh, on issues that they care about and not uh, you know what people are talking about in Washington D.C. How would you say the relationship is with Rick Scott, Senator from Florida and Chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee? Again, I mean, this is something that I don't spend a lot of time thinking about. I mean, I'm head down, make sure that we get. Uh, but reporters the, the, like me do. Oh, you you love it. I mean, and you can't there help is but talk a sense of disagreement, not only about the articulation of an agenda. Rick Scott has this whole thing. Mitch McConnell's washed his hands of it, and there's a sense among Republicans, grassroots and otherwise, the money is being either misallocated or not thoroughly well spent or raised enough, and the NRSC is getting a lot of blowback right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, uh, look, I used to be an NRSC executive director. I did it for two cycles. It's a tough place to run, Mm -hmm. and everybody second-guesses you, and uh, you never do it well enough. You never spend enough money on behalf of candidates. Every candidate wants more. Oh, they all do, yeah. And I I remember telling uh, candidates they weren't going to get their coordinator because we didn't think it was going to be a competitive race, or we thought it was excessively competitive. They didn't need it. Uh, So it's a tough job. You have a lot of people criticizing it, a lot of debate about it. Again, it's inside the beltway. I don't know that it matters at the end of the day. I think at this point, 
you know, my, my sense is, and I, you know, I don't, I don't get to talk to the people at the Senatorial Committee anymore because no, we can't, can't coordinate. Right. You know, just head down. We got to get our job done. And look, we, we ought to have a good environment that we take advantage of. And so uh, I, I think that the time of, you know, questioning all that has passed. There's always an opportunity after, I'll just make this last point, always an opportunity after an election to take a look back and say, what could we do better? Should we have spent more money early? Should we send, spend mm -hmm. it late? Should we be involved in primaries? Those are all discussions that I think are worth having, but after the election. It's kind of pointless right now. Right. You don't want to have preemptory recriminations. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One team, one fight. Yes. Um, however, uh, it seems unusual to me this kind of conversation before an election. I don't remember it being so easy to find quarrels among senior Senate Republicans about the strategy, the allocation of resources. Mm -hmm. It feels different to me. And I'm not saying that because I'm a newbie. Right. I've been doing this since 1990. It feels different to me. Does it feel different to you? Yeah, it seems a little noisier. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. A little unsettled. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. And that lack of cohesion could be a problem. You know, I think as we head into the final stretch, uh, you know, my sense is that people want to focus on the goal and not on, you know, disagreements. That's, that's my sense. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly from where I sit, uh, you know, we've got a bunch of Senate races to win. We've got some opportunities. Uh, we've got a good cycle and we ought to take advantage of it. Mm -hmm. Before we go to break, so 30 seconds, list for me and we'll go into detail on the other side of this break, the two Senate races where you think Republicans have the best chance of taking a Democratic seat away. The two best, Nevada, New Hampshire. Nevada and New Hampshire, mm -hmm. not Georgia. Well, New, ha New Georgia's right up there, but New Hampshire is a surprise. New Hampshire is a surprise, ladies and gentlemen. I know it's sort of been on the outer edges, but you've just described it as one of the best, and we're going to find out why you said New Hampshire is one of the best potential Republican pickup locations in this midterm map. I'm Major Garrett. Dirty Habit is our special Hosting restaurant, lunch is on the way. Stephen Law, our guest, back for segment three in just one second. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. You know, when people think about politics in Washington, they think about people who are right in the middle of the arena. Minority Leader Mitch McConnell would be one. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer would be another. And then there are these outside groups, which they deal with, also play a very big role. One of those outside groups is the Senate Leadership Fund. Its president is Stephen Law. You've gotten to know him in the last two segments. So right before we went to break, you tantalizingly said to me, one of the best Republican pickup opportunities this election cycle is New Hampshire. Why? Uh, because well, the, all, all, the, all the stories written six months ago is you swung and missed on your recruitment prize. 
Governor Sununu. Yes, that's right. You we did swing been, and miss. Right, we, uh, we, we hope to get him. We hope, uh, you always hope to, you always aim high when you do recruiting. Right. And we aim uh, high there, as in, in Arizona. Uh, we also took a flyer on uh, Governor Hogan in, in Maryland. We didn't really think he would do it, but we thought we might catch him in a weak moment, but uh, it didn't work. Um, but uh, in uh, New Hampshire, uh, it, it's interesting, whenever you talk to local politicians and you talk to them about somebody from the other party, they always say, oh, nobody likes that person. And you always take it with a grain of salt because, you know, obviously they're from the other party. In New Hampshire, people really just kind of don't like Maggie Hassan. I wouldn't the say they hate senator, her. Yes. Yeah, they, she, they just, they and don't, the polling data supports that. It yeah, shows exactly, up. right. And, and, and I, I think... Underwater. It, right, underwater. And I think in some ways... Approval, way she's, disapproval, out of whack. Yes, right, exactly that. And, and just a lack of real attachment to the electorate. Now, in her, you know, she's only been there one term, but she, I think she suffers from... Uh, comparison to Jean Shaheen, who is widely beloved in the state. Mm -hmm. We found that when we thought about taking her out uh, this last time. Just a tough, tougher target. Uh, But, uh, yeah, people don't love Maggie Hassan, and it stayed to this point. We thought that because of abortion politics, you know, New Hampshire is a pretty pro-choice state. We thought that would change the dynamic. Actually, it soured for her. And so we think we've got a, a, a very weak incumbent. The question is whether our nominee can take the fight. Who's the nominee? We'll find out tonight. <laughs> exactly. September 13th. Right. Yes, right. The last of the primaries on the calendar. Does it matter yes. who your nominee is? I think it probably does. I mean, name I think the names. Uh, well, there are several of them. There's, uh, but there's the, two leaders. Though. Right. Uh, State Senate President Chuck Morse, who's been endorsed by Chris Sununu, the governor, uh, whose opinion we obviously uh, respect a lot. Uh, there's another fellow who's a, a business guy and, uh, for, named Vikram, who's running a lot of TV time. So you can't complete completely count him out as a potential person in the race. You've got a, a, a general, a, a Don Boldick, who's mm-hmm. an unsuccessful candidate, run a, a couple times uh, in the state, and then there's a smattering of other right. people, too, who poll much lower. I mean, in a crowded primary, crazy things happen. You never know who comes out, but those are the likely people. Right, and either, regardless what, whether that's set, where that settles, you believe that's a, pickup op- a golden pickup opportunity for Republicans. It could be. The question is... Do we end up with a candidate who, you know, coming out of the starting gate is ready to go and raise money? Who would money? that be in your estimation? Well, I think we're, you know, we agnostic at the moment, but, but you know, the people mm-hmm. we respect, people like Governor Sununu, Governor Sununu he's right. endorsed Chuck Morris. A lot of people in the state like him. Right. Uh, he's got a long uh, tradition of If of, Chuck uh, Morris is the nominee, is the leadership fund in with both feet? I'm sure we are, yeah. Okay. Uh, you also said New Hampshire and Nevada, of course. Nevada. Paul yeah. Laxalt, son of former senator. Uh, why do you think that's a pickup opportunity? Uh, for two reasons. One is uh, Adam Laxalt is a tireless campaigner. Paul Laxalt was his father. Adam Laxalt is his father. Yeah. Yes. He's a nominee. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, well, actually, his father, as you may know, is Pete Domenici. Um, the, the untold story of uh, uh, Adam Laxalt. Please um, go. Yeah. Uh, his, uh, anyway, that's, that's all I know really about it. But uh, Or at least uh, I can share here. Part of here, the Laxalt yeah. family in right. Nevada, which right. has... Substantial name recognition yes. and visibility, and, and he's he's an he's, he's an experienced candidate. He's a very very uh, aggressive fundraiser. He's running a hard charging race, and he's up against Catherine Cortez Masto, which was really who was really basically put up for the job uh, by Senator Harry Reid. She's someone who hasn't really attached herself to the electorate. It's amazing after six years that she doesn't have a stronger connection uh, to that electorate. And uh, she's, she's sunk millions upon millions of dollars in advertising, positive advertising, mostly over the last several months, mm-hmm. and her numbers are worse. Uh, I just don't think that she's got a connection to the electorate. And in a cycle like this one, 
and in a state where a few other things are going on. First of all, we think Republicans are going to win that governor's race and do so handily. We think that Sheriff Lombardo is going to beat uh, Sisolak, who's extremely unpopular. And this, this state is much more sensitive to economic downturns than a lot of other states, mm-hmm. and it's really feeling it. You have a lot of middle-income, lower-middle-income people who are really getting hurt by and inflation. Unhappy. Yeah, they're unhappy, and they're going to be willing to take it out on whoever's in charge. So uh, Adam Laxalt is an election denier. Are you comfortable with that? I, I don't know what he said on that particular issue. I really don't. Um, at the end of the day, I think people are going to judge him on you know, where he is on the economy, where he is on uh, you know, inflation, spending, issues like that. Are you an election denier? I believe that President Biden won the election. I think there was some chicanery. I think people were doing things they shouldn't, but I don't I, like if you look, the evidence is not enough to suggest that the election was you know, wholesale stolen. Right, right. Not even close. Well, I'll just say this. We do a lot of polling. Yes. Our polling is very, I'm not very say, good. I'm not, uh, no, so not, there, 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 there's a difference between what people believe and what actually happened. Yeah. And what actually happened is it wasn't stolen. And as many people have said, several of them who work for President Trump, the evidence does not exist mm-hmm. to say it would have materially affected the outcome of the election. Fact. Right. But I, but I will say this. I think these issues, whether whether we think they're salient or not, whether we think you know, that people should pay more attention to them or not, I think those issues are not going to be top of mind mm-hmm. for voters when they go to the polls And do you fall. want Republican voters and Republican candidates to respect the outcome of elections? I think everybody should. Yeah, I think, I think Democrats should as well. And as you know, Democrats right. have had no, I a do. similar I do. Trust me, record. I, I know tw- it very well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've described it on this show. Um, do you have confidence in the system and the method by which we cast and count ballots in this country? Fundamentally, I do. Okay, yes. very good. Yeah. Uh, you did not mention Georgia on that list, and I was fully expecting you to say among the best Republican pickup opportunities in this midterm cycle would be Georgia. Why didn't you mention Georgia? You asked me for the top two. Right. Why isn't Georgia in the top two? Well, just because I think New ha- in New Hampshire we have a, a Democratic incumbent so in, so in Nevada, we have an unusually strong challenger. And in uh, New Hampshire, we have a, a surprisingly weak incumbent. Okay. What's, um, what exists in Georgia? In Georgia, you have uh, a Democratic incumbent who's got a huge amount of money. and uh, going Attachment to, to voters. Right. And, yeah, and going all the Raphael way back. Raphael Warnock is the, is the yes, sitting senator. Thank you. Yes. Senator Raphael Warnock going all the way back to 2020 before his race was really ripe. Uh, was able to spend a fortune building a very strong image with voters. And, uh, and that's, that's been a very durable image. Uh, and uh, it, it's taken a long time to get people to realize uh, that uh, he, he's been part of the crowd changing policy in, in Washington, D.C. in ways that people don't like. Uh, we're starting to see that, by the way. And, and one of the reasons why I have overall confidence about Republican chances uh, this, uh, this fall uh, you know, there's been a traditional separation between Joe Biden's low approval numbers and where Democrats currently mm-hmm. are. We're seeing Raphael Warnock's approval numbers start to sh- drop down to where Biden's is. Not all the way there yet, mm-hmm. but the same thing with Catherine Cortez Masto in, in Nevada. Um, some of that is just a natural effect as people get near the midterms. I'd like to think that some of that is also the result of our uh, advertising. But that's what makes Georgia tougher is a Democratic uh, incumbent who's got a strong image. And we're, it's, it's going to take some effort to dislodge voters away from it. Going back to the trenchant observations of the minority leader, Mitch McConnell. Candidate quality has a lot to do with the outcome. That's a direct quote. How, how does candidate quality affect your 
prospects in Georgia on the Republican side? I, I feel increasingly optimistic about it. I mean, about you Herschel know, Walker. Yeah, you know, one one of the things that why is he getting better? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No. I, look, I think uh, this is somebody who's long been in the public sphere, so he's not inexperienced as a public as a public presence. person. Yeah. Persona. Yeah. Going into the the hurly burly of politics as opposed to being a star is is a is a Star football it's player, a tough, right. yeah. It's a, it's a tough experience to go through, uh, but you know, by by everything I'm seeing and by all accounts I'm hearing about, uh, he has not only grasped but has embraced the difference of that. Uh, working hard to master issues, working hard to understand uh, the things that he needs to be talking about to connect with voters. He has an incredibly natural ability to communicate, uh, and what he's doing is building. The, uh, the the policy chops and everything else like that. From and, your and estimation, the, he's no longer a weak candidate. I think he's no longer a weak candidate. And I think the thing that, that the Democrats should fear is that one thing, the thing that propelled Herschel Walker to greatness was an unbelievable work ethic in the, in the athletic sphere. Uh, by all accounts, he has taken that same work ethic to politics. That and is, I think we're going to see the results. That is the voice of Stephen Law, president of the Senate Leadership Fund. I'm Major Garrett. Dirty Habit is our restaurant. I do believe the food is going to come eventually. I know it will. Back for segment four of the takeout in just one second. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Stephen Law, president of the Senate Leadership Fund, is our guest. I mean, he is, whether he would agree to it or not, a significant power player in this city. And lots of people listen and hang on his every word. That's why we have him on the show this week. Um, So on this day, we're recording September 13th. It's been announced by Charles Schumer, the current majority leader in the Senate, that he is putting $15 million from his campaign funds into the Senate midterm elections. Mm -hmm. $5 million to the the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. And then a million in Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, New Hampshire, Another million in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Ohio, and Florida. Mm-hmm. Does any of those designated million-dollar allotments surprise you? Uh, Florida, a little bit surprises me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that they, race does not look close. Marco Rubio against Val Demings. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's scratching an itch or something like that. But uh, yeah, is that performative? And Could is a be. million a million dollars a lot for for performance? Uh, not necessarily in politics. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Uh, well, I mean, um, and performative, I mean, you know, you're not going to win, but you don't want to hold out and don't want to suggest it's over before you absolutely. have absolutely. Yeah. Look, at this stage of the game, they're they're smart to try to keep everything in play. How yeah. about Ohio? Well, Ohio, you if know, you were a Chuck Schumer, would you be putting a million in Ohio with Tim Ryan? I think he would feel that he needs to because Tim Ryan has carried that race so much on his own back. Are you surprised how close that race is? Uh, I'm not because uh, Tim Ryan got uh, the li- uh, luxury of being able to spend $20 million unopposed before uh, J.D. Vance could get on his feet after a tough primary. So I'm, n- I'm not surprised. Is that going to be a J.D. Vance victory? Oh, yeah. I think By look, this, four, five, six? Uh, hard to call the margin, but I think we'll win. I mean, this is a state that Trump won by eight points in yep. both 16 and 20. 
and at the end of the day, too, I mean, uh, Tim Ryan is a is a fantastic campaigner. He's also living a little bit of a lie, kind of portraying himself as a MAGA Democrat, whereas, in fact, you know, he's been a... Is there such a thing? There probably are some. Yes, sure. Sure, there are some. He's just not one of them. He's not. He's a, he's a Nancy okay. Pelosi supporter. Uh, yeah, right, But he, he right. does a fantastic impersonation of So one. someone you know well, Tom Perez, was on this program a couple, three weeks ago. Sure. He works at American Bridge, which is a kind of other side of the aisle super PAC. Yep. He's mm-hmm. deeply involved in Senate races. He said, keep our eye on North Carolina. He believes that is a potential hot spot for Democrats. What do you think about the North Carolina Senate race? Boy, Democrats have blown so many tens of millions of dollars, maybe a hundred million plus, trying to win uh, North Carolina. They tried twice against Tillis, once against Tom Richard Burr. Yeah, yep. I think in a midterm environment, this is still a state that on the, is on the very cusp of lean Republican. Um, I don't think it turns Democrat. Uh, Sherry Beasley uh, has proven to be, I, I think, just by my view of her, kind of a lackluster candidate, not terribly exciting. Um, we're in there, you know, we're spending a fair amount of I money know uh, engaged there. But I, I think at the end of the day, we're going to hold that this time. Okay. What about Arizona? Arizona's tough. Um, Blake Masters did not say kind things about Mitch McConnell. Uh, and you have pulled some money out from the Senate Leadership Fund in that race. Yeah, we, we don't pay attention to what candidates say. We pay attention to how they poll and how much they raise. That's what we're focused on. Um, and he's underperformed in both. Well, no, look, I mean, I, I mean, look, his 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 biggest contributor is Peter Thiel. Mm-hmm. And he's not contributing now in the general. Uh, and as I understand it, the leadership fund's position is that's how you got there. That's how you got to stay there. No, no, I wouldn't say that. I mean, look, we uh, we we've spent a significant amount of money in Arizona already. We have another 10 million parked there for October. Parked, parked right. Yep. Not um, guaranteed, but parked. Right. We don't guarantee anybody. You know, it, it comes to it comes down to it. The we perception see how you do. is you're less bullish there than you were or ever might have been. I think there are a few things. Uh, one is you measure every race against every other race. You know, you've, right. got, you've got to take a look at where your opportunities are. We don't have unlimited money. Some days people think that, but we don't. And so we've got to make a decision. At the end of the day, where does this race versus another race stand? And that's true of all these races. Right. And, um, you know, I, I'm glad to see that uh, other groups have started to step in uh, in Arizona. Uh, Heritage Action announced a $5 million uh, commitment there, and they said it would be at least uh, that much. Um, and the other thing that's an important factor that you really need to keep an eye on is the governor's race. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people wrote off Carrie Lake as soon as she was nominated. That's at least a dead heat race. She may be leading. I think she's going to win, and she may win by a significant margin. If, it's similar to the Against dynamic. Katie Hobbs, the yeah. Democratic nominee. Right. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's similar to the dynamic in Georgia, where you, you have a very. Do those comp- governor's races bleed over into the Senate races? Is that what you're they, saying? I think they could if they were wide enough margin of victory. Meaning those governor's races, which people were not considering as coattail races necessarily three months ago, could be. Yes. I think both of them could be. Yeah. What about Wisconsin? Uh, Democrats believe, and 538 and uh, Larry Sabato's crystal ball at the University of Virginia consider that a highly vulnerable Republican incumbent in Ron Johnson. Well, I think they're all wrong. And I was wrong about Ron Johnson six years ago. We wrote him off for dead. We thought there was no chance that Ron Johnson was going to get reelection. I've since confessed to him. You know, I've mm-hmm. uh, said Maya Maxima culpa, and he absolved me. You know, right. uh, but uh, I, I think it's easy to to count Ron Johnson out because he doesn't sound like Washington, and uh, and yet he's 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 the kind of it's not just a persona; it's actually who he is that connects 
with a lot of working class swing voters who like a guy who tells it like it is and who isn't polished in the way he speaks. Uh, but I, I actually think he's running one of the best races in the country right now. One of the ways you can tell a race that's potentially effective and, and, and likely to win is if they're having fun. And he's having a, a lot of fun. I think their ads are good. And he happened to draw an opponent who I think is the right opponent to run against. Uh, you know, Mandela Barnes is a smart guy. He's a very, very good communicator. He's sharp. He connects with, with donors. I don't think at the end of the day he's going to connect with voters. He's very far left, especially on crime and on virtually every other issue from Medicare for all to anything on the economy. So I want to ask you a big picture question. It's election night and the returns are coming in and you will know it's a good night when? No, it's a good night when. Um, well, I'm thinking back to uh, 2016 when um, Wisconsin was one of the first races that got called. On the Senate side. Yeah. Yep. And, and that was the beginning of it. Uh, I think you take Like your- a lot of Senate Republicans in 2016, Ron Johnson outpolled Trump, as did Marco Rubio. Yeah. As did Tom Tillis, I believe. A lot mm-hmm. of Republicans did better than Trump did on their ballot in 2016. Yes. yes. I'm not sure they pulled them across, but whatever, they yeah. did better. I, I would. So keep an eye yeah. on Wisconsin. Yeah, keep an eye on Wisconsin. Margin and, in Ohio, I presume, and New Hampshire, because New Hampshire will close relatively early. Yes, right. That'll, that'll be early new news, the early news that we can uh, evaluate. Begin and then, to sift. Yeah, yeah. And then I think, um, you know, Pennsylvania almost always is a great deal later. So we, <laughs> if history is any guy, we may not know about it for a little while. But I, I would also say Georgia. I think Georgia is another one of yes. those states where uh, the margin of victory in the, in the governor's race, if that's decided early uh, with a big margin, I think we've got a great shot. It'll be the, the last thing to come in Alaska. Yes. Supporting Lisa Murkowski. We are. Yes. Why? Uh, well, first of all, we, we think that she's the, the, the right candidate to represent the state. We, uh, we have a, a mandate at Senate Leadership Fund where we stick with incumbents, and she is the incumbent. Uh, and and I, I think uh, her other, excuse me, Republican inco- uh, uh, opponent, Kelly Shabaka, is just off the grid enough that in a state like Alaska, which is more libertarian than conservative, and that has comfort voting for Democrats, could shift the other way. I think that's sort of unlikely, but in a ranked choice voting system election, strange things can happen. Uh, and so we want to make sure that uh, Lisa Murkowski comes through with a good, strong victory. Uh, he's a player, ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Law, president of Senate Leadership Fund. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. For those watching on CBS News streaming, listening on all the great podcast platforms, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake. Especially Alan Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Dirty Habit is our restaurant inside Hotel Monaco, downtown Washington, D.C. Lunch has arrived, I'm happy to say. Mm -hmm. Stephen Law, still with us because you were hanging around for the lunch, for goodness sake. Yeah, I'm not going to leave until I get fed. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, So one thing I want to ask you before we get into the fun and games portion of this, how much is the Senate Leadership Fund, which you are the president of, going to spend this election cycle roughly? Do you have a sense of that? 
Well, as much as we can raise, but somewhere north of $200 million. So somewhere north of $200 million. And you are the one who decides where those dollars are spent, right? Well, me and our team. And yeah. your team, right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and when someone in my audience thinks to myself, wait a minute, one fund, $200 million, that's an outrageous amount to spend on politics, you would say? You should see what the Democrats do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and yeah. if they would say, as a Democrat, I'm sort of alarmed by $200 million on either side, mm-hmm. you would say what? We're in the information game. I mean, we, uh, what we end up communicating, hopefully in our best days, is information that we think is salient about the candidates, ours uh, and theirs. And, you know, in modern politics, most people don't have a lot of time to go through and in- investigate and research the voting records of different candidates, where they stand, who they are. And uh, so we communicate that. And oftentimes we're communicating negative information, not exclusively, but, but a lot of it. And, and then we let the voters uh, decide. Uh, but... Um, and I know this, yep. the Senate Minority Leader, who you have a long-time relationship, because I've listened and I've interviewed Senator McConnell about this. When people say to him, too much money is involved in politics, he says, compared to what? We advertise and spend lots of money on lots of other things. And isn't politics as important as, as he would say, I've heard him say, yogurt, new cars, fill in the blank? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, where, where do you get your political information from? I think it's good when people do their own homework. That's fantastic. But we also provide information. And just like our counterparts on the left, uh, we fight over it. You know, we, there, there's a full scrum in full view. Everybody can take a look at it, decide who they think is more the reliable voice, the, the facts that are more salient to them, and they get to, to cast the vote. But um, exactly right. I mean, we're not just talking about whether it's brand X or brand Y. It's people and the future of the country. And because you can solicit and raise unlimited sums, you have donors. Ken Griffin is one. Uh, Steve Schwartzman is another. Timothy Mellon, 25, 30, 40 million. What are they giving you that money for? It's interesting. <clears throat> Every once in a while in between seasons, I talk to my friends on the Democratic side and we ask each other that question. And it's always the same answer. These are people who have been successful in life, many of them self-made. They love the country. And this is true on both sides. Mm-hmm. We talked about this. On the there, left there are the big right. money donors on the Democratic side, too. Let's let us be clear. Yes. And, and they who give, write equally large checks. Yeah. And, and 20, they, 30, 40 million. Right. And they've succeeded. They love the country. Their values that they feel are really important. They're con- typically they give because they're concerned about the direction of the country and they want to change. it. That's almost always what brings people uh, into the game. It's one of the reasons why Democrats recently have done much better in fundraising after the Dobbs decision. For them, on the Democratic side, they're concerned about it. They want to mm-hmm. push for people who are going to push back against that. So people give. I'm always kind of humbled by it. You know, they, get, they don't get anything out of it. I mean, we don't talk to candidates, so they don't get anything in that regard. But they, they give because they want to do something about the direction of the country, and one thing they can do is write a check. All right. This is the Funny Games part. Oh, we have good. three questions we've asked every single guest on this program. Take them in whichever order you prefer. Most influential book in your life? All-time favorite movie? And if you're on a long flight or a long drive and you're really going to enjoy some music, what artist or genre are you most likely to listen to? Wow. Okay. Um, take the last one first. Uh, like I said, long ago I was... Uh, an aspiring musician, um, but not aspiring enough. <laughs> and uh, uh, earlier on, I really liked rock music, but I've really grown to like jazz. It's the kind of music I like to listen to a lot. It's comfortable and easy to listen. I don't listen to smooth jazz. But Thank goodness. Like, yes, indeed. You, you may now stay at the table. <laughs> that is the correct answer. Right. Uh, but I, I've always been a huge fan of Miles Davis more than anything else. Uh, that kind of minimalist, deep, rich playing, uh, uh, to me, it's, it's, it's everything that jazz ought to be. 
Also a correct answer. Oh, good. And the other person I like to listen to, and I, I think it's appropriate to bring him up now because he just passed away, is Johnny DeFrancesco, mm-hmm. who was the king of Hammond B3 organ. God rest his soul. Yep. Uh, I tweeted that uh, Heaven now has a first-class Hammond B3 player. Exactly. Uh, which exactly. is, which is really good. All-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies? Uh, I'd say probably all-time favorite movie uh, would be Henry V. It's a redemption story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a story about uh, being one kind of person, kind of this ir- irresponsible playboy is Prince Hal, and he grows up. He's got to be the king, and he's that, he changes, and he becomes a person of consequence. So that, any redemption story to me is a great one, and I think that's one of the best. Um, it's Shakespeare, too. And Shakespeare, um, too. Let's just add that. Hard to disagree with that. Hard and then uh, influential book, I mean, I, I, uh, I'll set aside... First, the Bible, which would be the one that's changed me the most. Uh, but the book that I remember reading that that's kind of opened my eyes to what literature can do was Crime and Punishment by mm. Dostoevsky. Yep. Uh, beautiful book. Uh, and, and ultimately what it's about is the limitations of mere human, humanist intellectualism. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, again, it's a redemption story. The person comes into a, a kind of faith and it changes him, changes his whole perspective. And it opens up the idea of mercy, forgiveness, and human change. It's just a beautiful story. Hard to read a whole lot of those Russian names, but it, once yes. you get through it, it's its own reward. A little on the dense side, but worth yeah. all the effort. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate Stephen it. Stephen Law, president of the Senate Leadership Fund. That's it for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.